my dear friends. I don't know if any of you have ever served in the Marines, or maybe you got a military relative, but even if you have never served in the Marines, and I haven't, you might have heard the Marines hymn. They're very, very proud of it. You know how it goes, right? Da 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 From the of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. All right. What the heck are the halls of Montezuma? Do you have any idea what you're singing about? Where a hall is like a place, right? So where are the halls of Montezuma? Mexico. Montezuma was a great Aztec ruler. So this is a little bit of a slam on Mexico. It's a little boasting about the role of the Marines in the Mexican-American War in the 1840s. Not really the United States' proudest moment. We kind of picked a fight with a, a country in a lot of turmoil and basically peeled off the northern half of their country. That's the down and dirty of it. And the Marines were very proud of their role. And so in their Marine hymn, they're kind of boasting of their exploits. And obviously, the country was pretty young. Our country was pretty young. Mexico, even younger. And they're proud of the halls of Montezuma. All right, where's the shores of Tripoli? Northern Africa, Libya. And that refers to an even older conflict. In fact, one of our new country's actual first military engagements. The shores of Tripoli referred to the Americans' naval war against the Barbary pirates. Now, this sounds like, like a fun movie, doesn't it? The Barbary pirates. It was not fun at all. The Turkish Empire, the Ottomans, governed not only the Turkish part of the Anatolian Peninsula jutting out into the Mediterranean, but they also governed all of the Arab Muslim world as well surrounding the Mediterranean. So all of North Africa was part of their empire. And the Turks, as were the Christians, were very enthusiastic backers of the concept of slavery. And the city-states that were part of the Ottoman Empire in North Africa, Algiers was the worst, but Tripoli was the second worst would prey on the European shipping and not just steal the cargo off the ships, they'd steal the ships and they also would enslave the crews and any passengers they might find. On top of that, they would stage raids all over the Western Mediterranean. Italy and France and Spain were so terrorized by these raids, they couldn't even live anywhere near the seacoast. They abandoned their villages and cities on the coast. It wrecked their shipping. They couldn't live within 50 miles of the coast out of fear of these uh, Ottoman and Tripolitanian and Algerian pirates. It was called the Barbary Coast because the native stock of the people there were Berbers. In fact, those raiders went as far north as Iceland terrorizing the Atlantic coast as well, including all the way you know, up to Britain. And they kidnapped people and put, pressed them into slavery in the Ottoman Empire. They'd be sold at slave markets. Uh, the men would be sold to work, and the women, well, you can only guess what the women would be sold for. So our, our country, our young country, actually put a navy together, and old Ironsides, which you can still see in Boston Harbor, was one of those ships that participated in the Barbary campaign. 
1801 and 1802, and then another one after we were done uh, duking it out with the British in the War of 1812. There was a second Barbary War, and finally it stopped. You know how serious this was? In 1800, you know, we like to think our country was all safe and all alone here. Do you know that 20% of the U.S. federal budget in 1800 had to be paid to the Barbary pirates as a, as a tribute money to leave our ships alone and to not impress our citizens as slaves? It was a horrible, it was a big deal, and we were so young and small and broke and weak that all we could do was pay off these thugs. So it's a big deal. I want to talk to you today about Turkish slaves. Not the Barbary slaves, though, Colossian slaves. And it's always awkward and uncomfortable to talk about slavery because our country has such a miserable history. It's the biggest stain on our national history. You want so hard to be proud of America, and yet this hangs over us like a dark cloud that just never goes away. We have to come to grips with the fact that much of our nation's prosperity and the development and taming of the wilderness was done with slave labor. And yet, running away from those stories, even though today we have a, a very diverse congregation, we live in a very diverse city, and we're in one of the most diverse neighborhoods of a diverse city, you just can't run away from the story. So I'd say instead, let's stick our face in it and just see what was going on and see what there is to be instructive for us today. These stories are only painful and harmful if we don't learn from them, if we hide from them, if we pretend. But when we just look at things the way they were and what God had to say about it, that's, I think, our way out. I'd like to invite you to look up with me a story of some Turkish slaves. Actually, it wasn't uh, Turkish uh, back in these days, it was actually Asia Minor. The Turks had not yet invaded. And so the culture is still pretty heavily Greek. The province of Asia and its uh, neighboring province next door, Phrygia, were so important, it was the most densely populated part of that huge peninsula that sticks out into the Mediterranean that eventually it gave its name to the entire peninsula. It was called Asia Minor. And then it got so, so important and it was on people's lips so often, it gave its name to the entire continent. Everything east of Ephesus was called Asia. Ephesus was the principal city of Asia Minor and 120 miles upriver from Ephesus, up the Meander River, and up its little tributary, the Lycos, was the town of Colossae. It's possible that St. Paul had some personal experience there, or possibly the congregation was started there by some people that Paul had trained. But it shouldn't come as any surprise that there would be slaves in the congregation. Slavery was everywhere. I do mean everywhere. There was slavery at this time, you know, shortly after the time of Christ, there was slavery in Japan, there was slavery in China, there was slavery in India, there was an abundance of slavery in Africa, 
the Arabs were great slave traders, very enthusiastic. There was slavery in Europe. There was even slavery in the Americas before they were discovered by the Europeans. The Aztecs would enslave the people around them. In fact, not only would they enslave them, the Aztecs also would offer human sacrifices from their captives of war. Slavery was everywhere, hu human ownership. It fortunately was uh, in the Greek world was not as ugly as it was practiced here in America. It was not race-based. And in fact, slavery in America abused and forcibly through laws and intimidation was designed to keep people down. You weren't allowed to get an education. You weren't allowed to have bank accounts or to accumulate assets. And you certainly couldn't buy yourself out of slavery, buy your own freedom. But all those things were possible and even encouraged in the Greek world. But even in the Greek world, supposedly the birthplace of democracy, possibly as many as half of the population in the Greek world, the Greek-speaking world, meaning Greece proper and across the Aegean, the western part of Asia Minor, where Colossae was located, possibly as many as 50% of the people were part of a system of involuntary servitude, meaning you were not free to just walk away from your job and go try something else. You had to buy your way out. You were locked into some form of forced contract that you um, were not at liberty to renegotiate. Now, knowing all that, I'd like you to look at the end of Colossians chapter 3 with me. And this is one of those where I thought, oh man, slavery is such a painful, loaded word. I hate even to start this because everybody's going to get upset and, and angry right out of the gate. But hey, it is what it is. It's in the Bible. So let's stick our face into it and deal with it. Colossians 3, verse 22, Paul is writing to various groups of people and he's writing to what undoubtedly was a major component of that new congregation in Colossae. And he said, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. The word that St. Paul used, uh, doulos, often means slave, but it can also mean any sort of servant or even employee. Today we'd probably say employee, where you have an obedience relationship with a boss and you trade your labor for money. In fact, phrased that way or looking at it from that point of view, just about every uh, man and woman in the room is in that kind of relationship. You have a boss who defines your job for you, tells you what to do, reviews your work, and then gives you money. And you trade your brain power and your muscle power and your activity and your energy spend, you trade it for money. This is called work. In fact, from that point of view, we're these, these words might as well say, employees, obey your bosses in everything. And I think on a Labor Day, this is, there's some great insights here. Don't just think, well, this just applies to slavery back then. No, it's talking to everybody who, with expectations of obedience. And, man, I tell you, do you listen to when people talk about their jobs? I don't often hear people speak really glowingly about their jobs. It happens a little, but not enough. 
You know what I hear instead? And do you know what echoes I hear in my own crabby little mind? My boss is such a jerk. I'm never appreciated. I, I get paid way too little for what I have to put up with. My coworkers, I got there's this one woman that just drives me nuts. Can't hardly stand it. I run and hide from this woman. She terrifies and terrorizes me. That's the kind of stuff I hear. We're expected to do all this, and then we're demanded, we have mandatory overtime. Don't they think I have a life? I just, nobody appreciates me there. I can't wait to quit. I'm counting the days till I can retire. Every, I begrudge every last day. I am only doing it because I have to. Hate my job. Maybe you country music fans uh, heard of a dude called Johnny Paycheck. Remember his song? Take this job and. Wonder if those words have ever come out of your mouth. Hate my job. You know, you can frame your experience in that way, or you can say, How can I show? my Christian faith uniquely in a place that sometimes or often is not pleasant. Hmm. When I ponder what Christ had to go through to rescue me, when I realize that our sinful human race chose to rebel and disobey, why should I be surprised when not everybody in my workplace acts in a Christian way? Why should, I, why should my jaw drop to find unchristian behaviors? I should expect it. That's what life is like without Christ. I'm going to model a different way and absorb injustice in myself. And it's going to stop here. The negativity is going to stop with me. I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to keep recycling. If you sit in the lunchroom or around where the coffee pot is or uh, out if you're having a SIG break and you're out with your fellow uh, SIG exiles standing outside and, and grumping away and you feed on each other's negative energy, you just make them hate their jobs all the more as well. Here's a better way. Decide to give your cooperation and willing obedience to your bosses. And do it not only when you're being watched and to try to manipulate the situation and suck up to them and win their favor, but with sincerity of heart. In other words, do it in order to have the satisfaction of doing a good job, even when your coworkers are jerky, even when your boss is a jerk, even when you know you're not being compensated appropriately and you know you deserve a raise, do it anyway out of sincerity of heart because of your personal pride in doing a good job. Why? Do it out of reverence for the Lord who suffered terrible abuse in order to purchase the favor of God for you, the forgiveness of sins for you, and a life of immortality for you. Whatever you do, even you retired guys, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Hold nothing back, 100%. Take great pride in your job, no matter how humble. If your job is just rolling garbage carts from the curb out to a truck and dumping them in, and the smell makes you want to, you know, do what? 
Work at it with all your heart. Even if your task is a daycare worker and all you do is change diapers, wipe faces, and try to keep children alive all day, work at it with all your heart. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. Why? As working for the Lord, you're worshiping God, not just by doing fun jobs that pay really, really well, but by doing difficult, hard, and smelly, and, diff and frustrating jobs. But you're giving your love to the Lord and worshiping Him in this way, thanking Him that you have a job. You're working for the Lord, not for, not for other people, not for man. You're working for God, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. This is like Social Security, which you get taxed your entire working life, 40, 50 years worth, you have Social Security taxes withdrawn, and you don't gripe too much over that because you know someday you are going to need that and it's going to be coming back to you. God is watching you at work, and he, you are making investments that he is going to use to pay you back in a way you don't even know about yet. Just trust that he notices. And it's not that nobody notices me or I will receive no compensation for this. God, in fact, notices and will compensate you. There is a reward. Hold God to this. Who are you working for? Why are you doing this? If you have jerky customers who abuse you, relax. It's not, their problem isn't with you. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. You can show your Christian faith in the attitude that you bring to your workplace. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong and there is no favoritism. You may not be in a position or have authority or sufficient power to correct the wrongs in your workplace. But relax, God sees and he will take care of things in his own time. People who do wrong will be repaid. You can just relax, let go of it, let it go, and let God take care of it. And on the other hand, people who, maybe your workplace is one where you have some degree of authority. Masters, actually the Greek word is lords, kurioi, Provide your slaves, your servants, with what is right and fair. Why? Because you know that you have a master in heaven. You are accountable too. There's a cycle of accountability and God pays attention to everybody on earth who has leadership and authority. Every head of a household, every dad and husband not only has authority, he himself is on his knees with a higher authority over him that's holding him accountable for how the tone in the family is going on and how the family is doing. Every civil servant with authority is accountable to God for the power that he or she wields over the citizens. And every boss in the workplace is being watched and reviewed by God and there will be a day of reckoning. So it's not as though you're, you're stuck or you're trapped in a weird, painful, dysfunctional, unhappy, miserable situation and nobody sees or cares, and no, no good comes of all your struggles. Enormous good comes of it. And so my invitation and challenge to you today on this Labor Day is don't think of Labor Day as I can't wait to have a day off when I cannot work, but reframe your attitude towards work. Jesus said, my father works and I work. It's you were and I were made 
to work. In fact, I don't want to spoil your idea of heaven, but my opinion is that you will be working in heaven as well. It'll be a lot more fun, but we're made to work. We're made to produce. We're made to be creative. We're made to be in teams, in productive teams. We're made for this. It's, it's, it's our design. We're, the leisure that we have, you don't really enjoy leisure until you first worked a long, hard week. And a heaven that is nothing more than eight billion zillion years of being on, going on cruises and vacations would get sickening. Love your work. Decide to love it. Love it not only when it's lovable, which may be never. Choose to love it. Choose to bring an attitude. And you know what? You're going to find that you have more friends than you know what to do with. People will be drawn to you if you bring a positive spirit to your workplace. They'll wonder, what have you got? How do you do it? What keeps you so cheerful that will buy you cred at the office and other people will be drawn to you. You also will never get trapped in bad-mouthing someone where it comes back to bite you. That you get ratted out and your bad-mouthing your boss gets ratted out and you get busted. If you never bad-mouth your boss, you're never going to be busted for that. If you never bad-mouth one of your coworkers, you're never going to make the office situation worse. Love your work. Love it because God has given it to you and you can honor him not only when it's fun and lucrative and really well-paying, but you honor him even more when it's frustrating, exhausting, and looks like you're hitting dead ends. That is when your faith can shine the brightest. Give your boss a cooperative spirit. Do your best and whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart. And remember, you're not doing it for the money, primarily. You're not doing it for the boss or even your customers. But this is your worship. You are doing it as though for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Happy Labor Day, everybody. Amen.